Welcome to Across the Margin Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Learn more about Osiris at OsirisPod.com. Today's episode of Across the Margin Podcast features an interview with Patrick Burke, who is an associate professor of music at Washington University in St. Louis. Burke is the author of Come In and Hear the Truth, Jazz and Race on 52nd Street, he also is the author of the recently released Tear Down the Walls, White Radicalism and Black Power in 1960s Rock, which is the focus of this episode. From the earliest days of rock and roll, white artists regularly achieved fame, wealth, and success that eluded the black artists whose work had preceded and inspired them. This dynamic continued into the 1960s, even as the music and its fans grew to become more engaged political issues regarding race. In Tear Down the Walls, Patrick tells the story of white American and British rock musicians' engagement with black power politics and African-American music during the volatile years of 1968 and 1969. The book sheds new light on a significant but overlooked facet of 1960s rock, white musicians and audience casting themselves as political revolutionaries by enacting romanticized vision of African-American identity. These artists' attempts to cast themselves as revolutionary were often naive, misguided, or arrogant, but they could also reflect genuine interest in African-American music and culture and sincere investment in anti-racist politics. White musicians such as those in popular rock groups, Jefferson Airplane, the Rolling Stones, and the MC5, fascinated with black performance and rhetoric, simultaneously perpetuated a long history of racial appropriation and misrepresentation and made thoughtful, self-aware attempts to respectfully present African-American music in forms that white leftists found politically relevant. In Tear Down the Walls, Patrick neither condemns white rock musicians as inauthentic nor elevates them as revolutionary. The result is a fresh look at 1960s rock that provides new insight into how popular music both reflects and informs our ideas about race and how white musicians and activists can engage meaningfully with black political movements. I truly enjoyed talking to Patrick. We talked about a few truly fascinating moments that happened in 1968 and 1969, namely MC5's performance at the Democratic National Convention, Jefferson Airplane's infamous performance on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, John Luke Goddard meeting and working with the Rolling Stones on a documentary, and a crazy, crazy night at the Fillmore East on the Lower East Side on December 26, 1968. We talk about a whole lot more revolving around this issue, and Patrick shines a light and adds truly insightful context to a really complex issue. So I have no doubt you're going to enjoy this interview with Patrick Burke. Cross the margin. Cross the margin. Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. 
How are you? Good. I'm good. The book, uh, the book is great. It was, uh, it was, it was such a journey. I loved, um, you know, digging into all five of those uh, different moments in those years. It was, it was so much fun. Really great read. Cool. Thank. Yeah. Thanks a lot for reading. So, uh, your introduction um, in it, you suggest a reader might ask, uh, why another book about white musicians? A topic that has surely received its fair measure of attention. But your answer that followed was really, really fascinating. There was also uh, a claim by Nelson George right around that moment in the intro that I thought it was really um, telling. But I was wondering if you could elaborate on this. Why was it so important to discuss this uh, grouping of radical white musicians? Yeah, I mean, I think that... um yeah, absolutely. As I point out in the book, you know, white rock musicians certainly are not, you know, there's no shortage of uh, books about them. And often they are kind of celebrated in a way, um, not that they shouldn't be necessarily celebrated, but they're celebrated to a much greater extent than black musicians sure. of the same era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often in kind of different ways. So you, you read about white musicians, you know, they're treated as artists and, you know, creative geniuses and all this kind of thing. And Black musicians often don't get that same level of respect, I don't think. So, yeah, I wanted to kind of ask the question out loud, did you really need another book about white rock musicians? And what I hope I've done is demonstrate that maybe we need another sort of critical uh, take on white rock musicians, and in particular on the ways in which white rock musicians were influenced by African-American music and African-American politics uh, beyond, you know, I think it's widely understood that Elvis Presley was imitated, was, pardon me, was influenced by blues musicians, that sort of thing. Um, but at least looking at the 1960s, um, you have a lot of white musicians making some kind of effort to be allies to the black power movement. Yeah, yeah. And I was interested in how that played out um, and you know whether it was successful or not. Yeah, I think that was something that really struck out, stuck out to me. It was just kind of the earnest intent that kept popping up and it was really, it was really interesting, and you did such a good job of of finding this balance, um, you know, because there are two sides of a coin here, you know, the uh, being influenced and the homage versus the appropriation and theft, and uh, and so, um, you know, with that, I was curious about um, kind of this. It's such a well researched book, and you know, you really, it, it's, you could tell you took that effort to make sure you're you know, uh, citing examples of, of both perspectives. Was that was that pretty challenging in piecing this whole thing together? Yeah, challenging, but also fun. I mean, since I'm a historian, you know, a lot of what I like to do is, you know, once I've arrived on a topic that I'm interested in, you just try to find as much information as I possibly can about it. Uh, and that might be by, you know, sort of going through old books and newspapers. It might be going through archives of... Um, you know, clippings, people's correspondence, um, that kind of thing. Also, of course, listening to the music itself really closely and trying to figure out what it's telling us about the era. So, yeah, it was challenging, but, um, you know, once, once um, I think anyone who really likes history, you know, once you're kind of immersed in a topic, it's a lot of fun to try to find as much as you can. Yeah, you want to know everything. Yeah, I get to uh, what was the end of the book, and there was, you know, a good thick section still left, and I just realized how many footnotes. <laughs> no, it's- how much was yeah, there? that's true. I'm always a little bit, you know, if you're if you're scared of footnotes, um, you might be scared of my books. But I, I would say, you know, I tried to write in such a way that you don't actually have to read those. Um, oh yeah, definitely. You know, if, if if there's a particular if there's a particular issue where you're wondering where I found out what I found out about it, you can always go uh, reference them. But um, but I think the 
the book part of the book, I hope, stands alone without uh, no question, no all question. kind of scholarly stuff at the end. Definitely. And it, I think that balance was, it was so, it was it, it, just the effort you put into it just made, rounded it out. And I just learned so much about the way it was viewed on both sides, and which gave me respect for both angles and maybe confused me a little bit on exactly what I, <laughs> yeah. what I think. But uh, so let's dig into um, some of these moments, these dramatic incidences that are the foundation of the book all took place 1968, 1969. The first one you dig into is MC5 um, playing at the Democratic National Convention. That was... Uh, that was pretty wild. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there you're introduced to the White Panther Party. John Sinclair as well was really a big, big um, part of your book. And I was wondering if you could just kind of speak generally about that that moment, what it meant. And um, also kind of like, uh, you know, there's there's a point to um, kind of like, uh, you know, you, you touch on the lessons that can be learned, um, you know, kind of mistakes. There's do's and don'ts that come out of each of these moments. And you know, if you could also touch on what, um, where maybe they failed in their efforts. Um, but yeah, anything you want to tell us about that, I'd like to hear. It was a great uh, opening to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a really uh, fascinating moment where, I mean, essentially what happens is, you know, the Democratic National Convention um, was taking place in Chicago in 1968. Uh, a group of radicals uh, sort of centered on the group known as the Yippies, uh, which included people like Abby Hoffman, um, Gary Rubin, decided to have a kind of counter-protest, a protest um, in Chicago, and hyped the whole thing uh, absurdly. Uh, You know, said that it listed, you know, dozens of famous rock bands who were going to play there, um, including people like the Beatles, you know, who were never possibly going to come and do this. So they, you know, they kind of told lots. I mean, Seven is going to be like this major kind of rock festival, and their goal was to get um, a lot of young people to come and join the protest. Uh, as it turned out, the only band from out of town that came at all was the MC5, uh, who were a quintet from Detroit. At this point, didn't even have a record deal. You know, so most people outside of Michigan didn't know who they were, and they wind up playing this set, you know, for about forty-five minutes. Um, in front, you know, in front of a large audience, but you know, very much not the rock festival that was uh, that was expected. And right after they finish, you know, it's the beginning of where famously the Chicago police come in and start beating up the, the protesters. So it's a very dramatic story, um, and it's one that often, you know, to the extent people talk about it, it gets romanticized, I think, a little bit. Um, but you know, if you look at it, it's kind of an example of how. Um, you know, perhaps a lot of these events that we imagine as being very glorious are actually built around these little sort of negotiations and, you know, in the case of the Yippies misrepresentations, where, you know, it certainly did yield the result of lots of people coming to Chicago, whether it yielded the sort of political result they wanted is maybe a little bit more, um, that's maybe a little bit more up in the air, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I really, I, you know, I ended up doing so much research on John Sinclair after, after reading the book, just cause I mean, I knew a bunch about him, but I didn't realize, you know, what he did for MC5, how he, um, you know, he kind of changed their direction and, and, um, you know, kind of rev- revolutionized them or radicalized them in a certain way. That was just all fascinating, um, to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, um, you know, I guess like the fail I was seeing there is kind of the, um, uh, there was a lot of touching on the, the misuse of the stereotypes of black masculinity. And I think that comes into right. play with MC5 in a major way. Yeah, where you know, the MC5 were, you know, 
loved African American musical stripes, you know, avant garde jazz, blues, R and B, and their music um, incorporates all of those influences in what I would say is a really creative and exciting and cool kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, their public persona and their stage presence um, draws on a lot of these stereotypes about black men being, you know, sort of macho studs um, who, you know, all kind of act in this particular kind of way. And, you know, I think that obviously is something that we need to look at um, more critically. And so one of the questions I'm trying to ask is, you know, to what extent does, like, creative use of, um, to what extent does creative use of African-American music constitute appropriation? Mm-hmm. To what extent is it a tribute? To what extent is it bound up with these stereotypes uh, such that, you know, it's hard, even if it is meant as a tribute, maybe we don't want to excuse it away. Um, so, yeah, it's complicated. Um, and I hope I've, I've, I've tried to kind of weigh in in the final analysis without hiding how complicated it is. Totally. Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, Jefferson Airplane. The, uh, okay. That, that moment at the um, Smothers Brothers uh, Comedy Hour. Um, mm-hmm. That's uh, obviously, you know, that's where singer Grace Slick appeared covered in dark brown makeup and uh, gave a, a black power sign at the end of uh, their song. Um obviously uh, a problematic in, in a lot of ways, but uh, there's right. a, a great quote about um, Jefferson Airplane understandings uh, African-American music that um, Jefferson Airplane's music often reflected and uh, was um, comparatively sensitively understands of the nuance of um, African-American musical traditions and the band's ambitions, uh, connections to them. I don't know if I nailed the quote exactly, but... Uh, oh, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> good enough for me. <laughs> I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit. I mean, of course, you know, there's that one side of the coin that we're always speaking of where there's definitely issues with what they're doing, but they were tapped in a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's, it's, so to kind of compare to the previous um, discussion of the MC5, I mean, the MC5 were at least, you know, we're very much aware of what was going on in the Black Power movement. Um, you know, had a strong kind of awareness of what the Black Panthers, for example, um, stood for. And it's true that the Black Panthers didn't necessarily, you know, I, I quote um, Wayne Kramer, one of the MC5, saying, you know, the official Black Panther line on the MC5 was that they were idiots uh, and, and they stay away from them, which, which is, is there was that's not quite the whole story. There was, but there was some actual sort of a serious interaction between um, between the groups. But, you know, essentially the MC5 were politically active. Jefferson Airplane are much more, you know, they don't make a lot of statements about politics. They don't, they didn't, they don't necessarily seem to have been that invested in politics as we would conventionally define it. So I, I feel like what they do is often more of these kind of like artistic gestures that allude to politics without actually being it. So the example that you're talking about that I begin this chapter with is, yeah, Grace Slick appears on with the Jefferson Airplane on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, you know, a major network TV show, wearing what is essentially blackface. Um, it's hard to see it as anything else. And Slick herself commenting, you know, after the fact, made the connection too. So it's clear that that's what she's doing. Um, and makes the black power salute so that I think we're meant to see this as some kind of statement of solidarity with black power, but it's also obviously the most kind of misguided, offensive, presumptuous possible way of making that uh, claim. And so, 
what I'm looking at in that chapter is, you know, why on earth has she done this? Um, and I think I have, there's a few different angles from which one can, can view that. Yeah. But in the final analysis, you know, what I wound up looking at was how the Jefferson Airplane's music drew on African-American influences. And it's interesting that they actually do that in a fairly respectful, thoughtful, even humble kind of way that's not reflected at all in this political gesture with, or this quasi-political gesture with blackface. So it's, you know, again, it's, it's one of these things where it's a complicated issue. Um, I guess I would do not think appearing in blackface is all that complicated an issue. I'm happy to kind of condemn that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I definitely don't think that was an appropriate thing to do. But this question of, you know, to what extent, how do, how do musical influence and political mm-hmm. influence or political um, affectations fit together? Uh, it's tricky. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do the classic stereotype of 60s rock and counterculture is that you have this group of white musicians and their audience who, you know, are kind of all on the right side of history and, you know, change the world in some way. And I don't want to deny any of their accomplishments, but it's trickier than that. Um, sometimes they weren't on the right side of history and sometimes maybe they change the world in ways that are more ambivalent than, than we're usually led to think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It goes back to that earnest intent that was there too, regardless of um, how complex it is. And it is, it's super, super complex, but you're right. That, that, that one moment and that, uh, you know, decision she made with the blackface is definitely something that is, uh, you know, easily condemned. Um, but yeah, you know what? I, I just want to mention to the listeners as well too. I'm kind of breezing through a little bit of these, uh, these, you know, touchstone moments that make up the book, but they really go in depth and there's so much, to dissect with all these things, but I'm kind of just trying to offer up a little taste of some of these fun moments that you get to spend with musicians and, and artists. And, you know, it, it just, it's, you know, in this wild period of time that is the late sixties. And, um, you know, what we come upon next is, um, you know, filmmaker, uh, John Luke Goddard, uh, meeting with the Rolling mm-hmm. Stones. And this was uh wild, I've seen sympathy with the devil and I need to rewatch it again with these, you know, the, the new lens I've been given about the film and, and okay. everything I learned about the stones. But, um, you, uh, you state that, um, your interest in the film, um, one plus one, it was, it was known as, uh, initially derives from, um, uh, Godard's perspective on the role of African-American music and rhetoric in 1960s rock. Um, what was that perspective because it was so interesting his ultimate take on things and how was it so compelling yeah i mean this is a very so have you you've seen the movie before yeah but it's been a bit yeah so you know it's a very strange movie i mean, I mean yep. so guitar guitar got um you know made an arrangement with the rolling stones to film them in the recording studio and you know guitar is one of the great filmmakers of the 60s and really knows how to you know, make a beautiful film. So part of this movie is this really beautifully shot, um, you know, sort of un, um, you know, almost kind of like fly on the wall yep, um, footage of the Rolling Stones. And it turns out that they happen to be sort of perfecting the arrangement of Sympathy for the Devil, mm-hmm. which goes on to be one of their most famous songs, right? So it becomes kind of amazing that Godard is there and you can actually watch the process happening. Yeah. And what he does is he chops that footage into about 10-minute increments and then in between those those um, increments, increments isn't the word I'm looking for, 10-minute uh, sequences, in between those sequences, he puts these other sequences that seem to have nothing to do with anything. Um, there's a scene where 
you've got a bunch of hippies in a pornography shop. Um, there's a scene where you have um, there's a woman who eats democracy who's wandering around in the forest and people are asking her questions. There's an, and there's another sequence or two, which is the one I spend the most time on, where there are a bunch of black radicals in a junkyard and they are reading um, texts out loud um, by people like Amiri Baraka and Eldridge Cleaver, so important um, black writers at the time. Uh, and my, my take on my argument um, in the book is that actually these sequences that seem unconnected have a lot to do with each other um, because you have the Rolling Stones who are, you know, one of the most famous uh, rock bands in the world by 1968 and, you know, very famously immersed in African-American music and culture. Uh, one might argue appropriators of that culture. And then you have this juxtaposition with these stage scenes of these black militants who, you know, if you pay close attention are, are reading, um, in many cases, passages that are precisely about cultural appropriation. Uh, so it's almost like the movie presents the Rolling Stones and then kind of critiques them at the same time. Um, and I, I will say, you know, this is not a movie that I, I probably like this movie more than many people do. Uh, if you look it up online, the typical viewer is somebody who loves the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. part and, you know, fast forwards to the other bits. So I'm, I hope I'm making some kind of a case that this is maybe worse. Um, as you say, I hope if, if people have seen this before, I hope they'll view it, you know, maybe again through another lens, something like that. But that's, but that's, that's the idea is that, you know, Godard is kind of acting as a, he's making his own creative work, but he's also acting as a kind of cultural critic uh, at the same time. It's really wild to think about like kind of a rock doc. I know it's no ordinary rock doc being made where he is kind of making a critique of the subject matter of it. And also his, mm -hmm. uh, ultimate critique, as you point out, you know, it, it was just, it, it really made me think at the acknowledgement that, well, his acknowledgement that the troubling possibility that both rock music and revolutionary politics are, uh, social and textual constructs created through the circularization of borrowed texts rather than, um, you know, an essential reality. It just, the, that viewpoint was something I'd mused over a whole bunch. And, um, <laughs> Good. Yeah, and uh, the way that chapter starts out is insane. The um, the film premiere is crazy. Just the idea, also how kind of the film came together. How it was gonna he was gonna do um, a film about abortion rights, and uh, you know it led him to you know London and doing this story. And you know it, it just the credit to the stories within the stories um, that are within the book, which is just really it's what makes the book so fun. Let me hit one more moment, if you don't mind. The uh, yeah, it's the next one. It's um, uh, I, I, this was just you know being a New Yorker, this hit home, and you know knowing the uh -huh. legacy of the Fillmore East. But um, uh, you know something uh, happened, uh, you know that, that involved MC Five at the Fillmore East and Lower East Side on um, December. 26, 1968, I was wondering if you could talk about what happened that wild night and what, in regards to, um, you know, what we're talking about with uh, rock and race here, um, can be learned from that, that <laughs> truly crazy night. Yeah, so the, the story is that, you know, the MC5 had, were, had, by this point, so it's the end of 1968, it had a record deal with Electra Records. Um, the record's about to come out, um, and they are promoting the MC5 by having them, you know, play shows in major venues. So they go to the Fillmore East, which is, you know, was at the time a relatively new rock venue, um, you know, in on 
the Lower East Side slash East Village of uh, Manhattan, um, operated by this guy, Bill Graham, who had been uh, the promoter of the original Fillmore, which was in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And the Fillmore East became very quickly like the major rock venue in New York. So this is a major kind of forum for the MC5. In the meantime, the MC5 have attracted the attention of uh, this radical group uh, based also in the Lower East Side called the Motherfuckers. Um, and the Motherfuckers were a sort of anarchist collective um, basically devoted to um, a, a term that, that some of these groups used was total assault on the culture. Uh, so the idea being that, you know, kind of any aspect of the um, ruling power structure, they wanted to, you know, if not overthrow, because that would have been unlikely with you know a small number of people in this little group, um, at least sort of draw attention to, criticize, um, use dramatic means to uh, to try and undermine. And so the MC5 um, arrives at the Fillmore East while the motherfuckers are in the middle of this battle with Bill Graham, uh, and they want Bill Graham to give them one night a week to use the theater for themselves uh, for free. And essentially this means they want to invite anybody who wants to come to come in and um, you know, do whatever they want to. And Graham is, of course, you know, a business person first and foremost, and so there is increasing argument about, um, on the one hand, this would be good PR for Graham. On the other hand, um, it's, um, you know, he's, he's paying for the facility, and you know, these people want to sort of um, have him pay for them to use it for free. So the, the argument, the point of the whole thing is that um, the motherfuckers who were predominantly not quite exclusively white make their case um, in terms that are drawn from the black power movement and the black arts movement. The idea that, so for example, somebody like Amiri Baraka argues that black music is an integral part of black culture, it belongs to black people, and that you know, white people making use of it are stealing it. Um, so the motherfuckers try to make an analogy between the African-American community and the counterculture. And they say, well, okay, if that's true, then rock music is music of our culture and Bill Graham is stealing it. And obviously there are some problems with this analogy. Um, the, you know, when we talk about African-American music, we're talking about a long tradition, um, rooted at some level in experiences of oppression and resistance. Um, it's harder to make that case for hippies in the 1960s. But the motherfuckers are very sort of vociferous about it. And it winds up in this huge debacle where the motherfuckers physically attack Bill Graham, um, actually hit him in the head with a bicycle chain, um, which is, you know, a pretty horrible thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then they turn on the MC5 because the MC5 are, um, have not shown the right level of dedication to the cause. And in fact, they get up on stage and say, we didn't come here for politics. We came here to play music. Um, which is the worst possible thing you could say to one of the motherfuckers because for them, music and politics are the same thing. Yep. Um, yep. And politics is probably more important. Mm. So this turns into a, a, uh, it turns into a kind of, um, a literal battle where the MC5 have to flee essentially so they don't get beaten up. And at the last moment, um, limousines from Electra Records come to pick them up. Um, which hilarious. again is like the worst, the worst thing, the worst yeah. possible thing, because yeah. this, is a, this is such a symbol that they have sold out to, yeah. you know, to the man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a, um, in microcosm, it's a lot of the issues that I'm talking about in the book where you have people mm-hmm. who are kind of competing to be the most radical. They are all doing so 
on the basis of this. They're all trying to demonstrate how radical they are by mimicking or perhaps appropriating the rhetoric of the Black Power movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at least in this case, it doesn't turn out well. It turns much more into a kind of competition among white radicals than it does any sort of, you know, specific kind of show of support for the Black Power movement. Absolutely. <laughs> that limo part just killed me. It just, that... It's wild. The whole thing felt uh, it, it's you can you really drew you in. You know the the your writing really drew uh, drew you into that moment and just the tension and everything that was happening and the reasons why that was that was that was really wild stuff. Um, okay. The uh, just to kind of you know steer us towards the end of this conversation. The um, the epilogue points out as as is pretty you know obvious uh, in the culture out there that you could see that this conversation has kind of steered from, um, you know, rock music to, you know, hip hop more these days. And that's where mm-hmm. uh, we hear more about appropriation and everything like that. Um, and then I, I guess, you know, that leads me just to the thought, because, um, you know, what we're trying to figure out here, um, and it was kind of the, the question that's kind of underlies your whole book, and that is, um, what would an ethical um, white relationship um, to african-american music look like and and then you point out you know the question is there such a thing and i was wondering just your general thoughts on that after exploring this these these ideas and these moments and all these situations so so in depth yeah i mean it's a hard question and you know i I think it's one that i've tried to kind of gesture toward answers to Mm -hmm. um it may not be my place to answer the question i I mean you know the idea i think what i think what constitutes a an ethical white relationship to black music um, I'm not sure that I, as a white scholar, should be dictating that necessarily. I mean, I think I should be listening to what black musicians and black scholars have to say, and, I, and I've tried to do that throughout the book uh, as well. Oh, no doubt. Um, but you know, to the extent that I would answer the question, I think it would involve, um, I think an ethical white relationship to black music would involve humility. Um, I think it would involve some kind, some kind of awareness that... Um, even though I think it's a good thing to try to contribute to black political uh, causes, one should try to do that in a way that doesn't center oneself. Um, So, and I think that probably applies to music as well, that, you know, if you are um, openly acknowledging that you have African-American influences and are trying to do something creative and respectful with them, I think that's generally probably okay. Um, There's a fine line between that and perhaps representing you know, representing oneself as an expert um, or as authentic that uh, I think, you know, white musicians have to be wary of. So, yeah, I'm not sure there's one. I would like there to be a single one-size-fits-all, um, do it this way and it'll be fine approach, but I think it involves being aware of what's happening, you know, both politically and musically around you at any given moment and trying to um, trying to do something that is both yeah. respectful and, again, doesn't make... Um, doesn't kind of mask the contributions of the black musicians that that have influenced mm-hmm. uh, have influenced you. Yeah, well, it's I mean it's such a nuanced uh, question and 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 topic, and and what's clear is you handled it with such uh, care and uh, like I alluded to multiple times, balance, and that's what really makes this book so special. And again, it's so special because of all the uh, just just the myriad of stories and 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 just these. It's just it's it's wild how much. Uh, is in this book and it was really it was wonderful to read and um you know it was really great having you on here to uh dig into a little bit and and give me some behind the scenes uh information about about all this so thank you so much for your time yeah and, and thanks, talking thanks. About the books. 
Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for all the nice words about the book, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk. Right now, right now, right now, it's time to... Take out the jams, motherfucker! This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.